welcome to the Kixology podcast, a show all about running shoes. My name is Brian Metzler, your host and resident running shoe geek. I'm also the author of Kixology, a book about the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes. In this episode, I'm joined by two of my favorite people in the running shoe business. Carl Brandt, a longtime running shoe retailer who started and operated the great moving shoes stores in San Diego for 35 years, and Mike Finelli, a running historian who not only worked in running retail, but also served key marketing roles for Reebok, Boys Sports, and the Sports Authority, and owned the 225 Marathon PR. In this episode, we talk about how running shoes have evolved from the early days of the 1960s through the original running boom of the 1970s and 80s to where we are now. We talk about some of the classic models, some complete failures, and also the minimalist boom and the rise of super shoes. Thanks for tuning in. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. Hey there, Brian. I'm psyched to have you guys on. As I mentioned in the intro notes, uh, we have uh, Mike Finelli here and Carl Brandt, two people I consider uh, to be uh, kind of uh, iconic people in the running shoe industry. Uh, they happen to be two guys I interviewed for my book, uh, Kixology. But uh, Mike, obviously your background, uh, you were a runner, you were running retail, um, got into marketing with a couple brands and uh, retail shops. Uh, so obviously your experience is wide. And Carl, uh, you were a longtime retailer, one of the one of the most well-known retailers in the country in San Diego with Moving Shoes. Um, I guess I guess we're here because we know running shoes are special and unique, and yet they've evolved. And we'll kind of delve into that in this conversation. But I guess maybe starting with uh, with you, Mike. I mean, obviously, I know you've told a lot of stories uh, on social media about how you started running, and I think you started running in a pair of uh, was it Keds or Converse, and that's how you get your start in in running shoes. I guess. Refresh us with that story. Oh, yeah. Well, fun fun story, I guess. Kind of um, when I first began running, um, 1968, uh, high black uh, uh, Converse Chuck Taylor All-Stars in my neighborhood in Philly. You had to wear black. If you wore white, you got beat up. I know that's different in certain places like Boston. You had to wear white and not black. Uh, and I ran my entire first cross-country season, frankly, in, in high black Chucks. Uh, I begged my dad every uh, every week. I said, Dad, man, I, everybody else has got real running shoes. I don't have real running shoes. I got Converse. You know, My dad would say, well, and this is in 1970, we'll see if you stick with it. So <laughs> <laughs> finally, finally, like the very last minute of the season, we go to the week. We, we win the, like, the uh, Catholic League championships. We go to the city, get to compete in the city championships against Overbrook. And the day before, I get a $10. That's right. It would cost 10 bucks. A $10 pair of uh, Onitsuka Tiger Marathons. Whoa. Classic. Back in the day, that, that's what it was. I mean, obviously, uh, low to the ground, not much there, not much uh, in terms of material or foam or cushion at all, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's where that's where shoes were back in at that era. Yeah. yeah, it was cool to start off with a racing flat versus a training shoe. Not everybody does it that way. <laughs> Uh, Carl, how about you? What are your earliest memories of running shoes uh, before you got into the retail world? Well, I, I I started running in Chuck Taylors as well. Not for any team stuff. I, I started running by myself. In, in The only sport I did in high school officially was wrestling. But we did a fair amount of running, at least wind sprint stuff, uh, for wrestling. And then the summer after I graduated from high school... I was working at a camp in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, and I used to go for a uh, one to two mile run in my low cut Chuck Taylors. And 
I thought life was fine. <laughs> and, and it was. I mean, obviously, that's what running was. I mean, we know that obviously shoes have changed considerably. We're now at a point where we have these $250 uh, shoes with carbon fiber plates and these advanced foams that have, uh, you know, kind of evolved through the years. Um, I guess my question is, how did we get here? You know, it's like uh, I, I first started running. My first real pair of running shoes was probably, I mean, it's, I had some some off-brand, I had some Keds, I had some uh, probably an early Nike, but like I, I had a Adidas Oregon, which is probably 1981, I think, or so, but like that was a great shoe, but that, that was far advanced from what it was. But I guess, how did we get here? I mean, you know, my uh, research into the book and my recollections, you know, certainly we know the running boom happened. We, you know, the, the Nike Blue Ribbon Sports uh, was a big part of that. I guess maybe start with Mike. I mean, um, kind of how did the evolution begin? Because obviously we're a long way from that now. Well, first of all, I wanted to backtrack a little bit about my pal, Carl Brandt. Carl and I have known each other for about 35 years, and we know each other from uh, from retail, right? Carl, I think when I was I was came down yeah. to your account, right? A moving shoes. Um, I don't remember the exact meeting, but yes, I mean, I know a whole bunch of the other people that worked at Hoy's with you. Yeah. Um, uh, Mike uh, McManus right. and Heather Peraldi, probably two of them. Right on. Um, but uh, one of the things I was going to mention about Carl, which is really cool, is Carl went to high school with the world record holder in the high jump. It's true. Isn't that right? Pat Mutzdorf lived about three blocks from me. Pat I, I competed against Pat Mutzdorf in grade school. <laughs> That's and, and what, what did you compete against uh, Pat Mutzdorf in? B uh, basketball. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, he set the world record in the high jump in 1975 at the USA versus USSR and Berkeley, uh, which is also that same meet where uh, Pre set the first his first American record in the 5,000 meters. I thought you should know that about Carl Brandt. And, and one more side note is, of course, Mike Finelli is known for the track and field garage, which is a uh, endless, <laughs> endless uh, uh, volcano of information, history, uh, trivia, and fun facts. And my wife calls yes, it Mike, garbage. <laughs> Mike uh, Finelli's Facebook posts uh, have, have made the pandemic worthwhile. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but maybe drawing on that, Mike, I mean, like, uh, obviously, you do have a, a good knowledge of shoes and such. And, and um, you know, obviously, after those early days in the, in the Chuck Taylors and such, I mean, obviously, more people started running. Um, the industry wasn't quite that yet. There was brands, obviously, and 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 maybe maybe take us back to the early '70s and kind of how you well, remember it, kind of emerging from there. Yeah, once we started, how you know uh, EVA midsoles like the Nike Core. I'm sorry, uh, actually the Onitsuka Tiger Cortez that became rapidly the the Nike uh, Cortez. You know, we guys were running. You know, in in these kinds of shoes, we're running 100 miles a week, even in in the junk that we had. You know, and then as the, the midsoles, you know, progressed into, you know, compression molded EVA and, and that sort of thing. But in the early days, you know, guys were running in, you know, plimsolls, basically, you know. So um, there were breakthroughs. And, you know, I you know, think the, you know, the 100 mile per week uh, distance runner, uh, every it was everybody. You know, we were all trying to qualify for the Olympic trials in the marathon. We were all trying to break 220. Um, and... Um, I think to, that, you know, once we, you know, we, we spent a lot of time and we spent just as much time injured as we did uh, fit, uh, but we were younger then. And, uh, you know, the, oh, clearly the older we get, the faster we were. But uh, 
I think probably the first real breakthrough, <laughs> big big breakthrough was EVA, uh, and 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 then as we hit the late seventies, getting into the polyurethane midsole with uh, uh, the the tailwind. Um, what do you think, Carl? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we're we're talking about you. You said you started with racing shoes and worked into trainers back before just a generation or something. There wasn't any such thing as a training shoe with any lift or cushion to it. Uh, so, the, the, and you know, the old sheet EVA shoes, as opposed to the compression molded stuff. I, I had some really good times in some of those regular sheet cut EVA stuff. Not yeah, fast yes. times, as as opposed to Mike Finelli. I was a, a who who might have been a has been. I, I'm a never was. I, so I, I never was fast. I got into a running specialty on several good chances of flukes or whatever, but I'm very grateful that that happened. Hey, sure. Carl, what was your first training What was your first training Um, the, the Nike Roadrunner, which was a, oh. a, a blue suede shoe. It had just a bump of cushion in the heel and across the met heads, but other than that, there was no depth to it whatsoever. I remember that. That was cool. Mine was uh, the Adidas Olympia. Remember that? Ah. White leather, big, heavy white leather, three black stripes. Yeah, uh -huh. the, the, I mean, Adidas, I mean, you, you talk to even... In the, the 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 late seventies and eighties, you talk to kids in high school, and they think that Nike had been around forever. <laughs> when uh, they were the new kid on the block, yeah. I, I got my first pair of Nikes. I'm not sure what they even were. I was it was probably 1978, and I'm uh, you know I was in probably fourth or fifth grade then. It was a big deal, and yeah, kids kids at that point, you know, were certainly uh, there was there was that buzz that Nike still has now, but certainly. Um, it was a big thing, and, and I, I don't think we had any concept of how long they'd been around, but certainly uh, certainly they hadn't been around long. Um, but, Carl, to your point, I mean, obviously, whether you were a fast runner um, then or now or, or whether you were you know a fitness runner or, or whatever, I mean, obviously, those things both had uh, elements um, that changed the, the running industry. And I guess one of my questions, uh, you know, Mike, you mentioned, obviously, there was there was uh, new midsole foams. I think, you know, Brooks was one of the first to put in uh, true EVA, but, but obviously other brands had different kinds of foams and such. And there was this initial uh, advertising and foam war. I remember seeing some of the ads in the 1970s of like, you know, our foam is better. Try this shoe. And that's when, <laughs> when the marketing hype really came through. But I guess my question would be to both of you is, you know, when these first changes of foam and heel lifts came out, was it for the competitive runners or was it more a reaction to the boom of uh, recreational runners? Oh, well, I think it happened before the boom of recreational runners. So it was for the people who called themselves runners, which at that time were mainly competitive, at least on an age group scale, if not overall. Yeah. It was runners versus joggers. Yep. Yeah, and, and the word jogging is gone now, right? Uh, people, people, well, people back then. Yeah, <laughs> circle. We used to be runners, and now we're joggers, or or slow joggers, which we call sloggers. Well, that's true, and you're very modest. But I, I think certainly, I remember, I remember as a kid, like it was it was a jogging boom more than anything else, and certainly runners were the runners, the fast runners, but but joggers were happily. 
kind of attached to that name because it was like part of this this trend in, in the fad and, and whatever it is. And, and then people got into it, obviously. And then at some point, though, I, I don't know why, we, and this is kind of an aside, but like the word jogging became a derogatory thing because no one wanted to be known as a jogger for quite a while. It became, oh, I'm a runner. I'm, I'm running a marathon. I'm not jogging it. So that's, that's a whole aside. But it's, it does seem like there was, um, yeah, to your point, Carl, yeah, that uh, there was some innovations that happened for for the evolution of performance running for competitive running, but then mm-hmm. also certainly as this boom of runners, you know, probably at the time when, when moving shoes was opening up in 1977, 78, uh, certainly that's when this big influx of, it seems like new, new innovations came about. Um, I guess Carl, take us back to what it was like to open a running retail store um, back in that at time. I, there weren't, well, there weren't a ton of stores back so, then. Talk, talk about that. My, my original partner, Rick Vandertie and I moved from Wisconsin out to San Diego specifically to open a, uh, a running store. At that point in time, I think we might have had six or seven models of shoes on the wall because that was a really good cross-section of what existed back then. <laughs> and then shortly after that, it, it's like model after model, and now it's to the point where even the people who follow it daily can't keep up with all the new models that exist. Yeah, that's a good point. There's hundreds. I mean, obviously, any typical shoe store, now, any running store has 100 and 120 shoes on the wall. Um, and obviously, there's there's all these special makeups, all kinds of things. But I, I imagine that it was quite an adventure, but also maybe pretty scary, and pretty risky uh, to open up a, quote, running store back then when many didn't exist. We did. We admittedly didn't know what the heck we were doing, uh, <laughs> other than some friends of ours in Madison, Wisconsin. There still is a moving shoes in Madison, Wisconsin, which is doing just fine. And uh, with their help, we sort of decided to open up a store with the same name in San Diego. And uh, it it worked other than we started with no money and you know, uh, 40 some years later, that's the way we ended. Yeah. I remember I didn't, I didn't visit, uh, your stores until the early two thousands, but I remember it was still classic what I remembered and what I appreciated it in a running store. And it had, you know, runners there, runners were working the store. And also there was, you know, cool posters on the wall. I mean, I remember my first, uh, experience in our running specialty store in the suburbs of Chicago, there was a place called, um, competitive foot, which was, I believe in 1974 when it opened the first, uh, running slash also tennis, but running store um, in Illinois. And by the time I started going to it, it yeah, it had posters of Bill Rogers and and and, and Frank Shorter, and it, and it was a cool place. It had this kind of culture of running, which is what I you know recall about your stores. You know, even though I didn't visit them till later, but it seemed like it seemed like running back then certainly had this this culture and less of a corporate kind of uh, kind of feeling about them. Yeah, even the people who weren't fast or trying to be super fast truly appreciated. You know the the Billy Rogers and Frank Shorters of the world. There yeah. there was a, an acknowledgement of, hey, those guys can do that in a time which I can't even do in my dreams, kind of thing. You know, but so. but doing the same thing and wearing the same shoes, and so to have those posters from a from a Brooks or Nike on the wall, obviously seemed seem to uh, you know been a great uh, initial marketing tool relative to the fact that these these runners were still kind of uh, heroes to those other other runners. I guess, Mike, talk about that. You were at a store, I think, Runner's Feet, right, back in uh, 1977, certainly the early period of running retail. I guess talk about that experience and kind of how both um, customer engagement and also the the icons of running were a big deal. 
Yeah, well, you know, 1977. So I was selling um, New Balance 320s uh, by the boatload. Uh, and Brooks, they had the Varus wedge and they fell apart in two, two, two or three uh, runs. And it was a funny, the, the product that was available at the time was something else. And, you know, the 320 actually replaced, you know, and it was like a, the, the old Trackster, right? You know, from New Balance. Yes. It was really early on. Um, um, I'd been in love myself with footwear since, you know, forever. I mean, do you remember this, Carl? What do you remember what Adidas meant when we were in kid when we were kids in school? <laughs> oh, I've heard various iterations. Go ahead. What's the one you remember? Yes, yeah, yeah. So all day I dream about sex. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Uh, and and then remembering getting, you know, so I love uh, uh, when I, I would order shoes from uh, Blue Ribbon Sports. You know, they were in California. They were like, you know, the cool, the cool store. They had the, they had the ad on the every year, every week, uh, every month, excuse me, uh, on uh, the back of Runner's World magazine when Runner's World was still black and white and bi-monthly. So you'd order your Onitsuka Tigers from them. And I remember being, I think it was about 1972. I think I was a sophomore. Could have been a junior in high school, Bishop McDevitt in Philadelphia. I had ordered my uh, my pair of my my next pair of uh, you know fifteen dollar uh, Onitsuka Tiger marathons from Blue Ribbon Sports. When they came, they came instead of the yellow box with a plastic bag, they came in this orange box that said Nike. And I'm like, <laughs> what the hell is this? They're ripping me off. What is? This? I was beside myself when I got this orange box. It said Nike on the side, you know, I was like, whoa. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, the whole evolution and the history of your relationship with shoes um, uh, really kind of is cool for us to have morphed into a profession uh, over time. Um, so selling shoes in college, first at runner's feet and then at uh, uh, second, second soul, which was known for what they did was you, you brought your shoes back in after they were rashed and trashed and they replaced the the outsole they weren't replacing midsoles but what do we know we just i'm oh, sure you got a new you got a new outsole you got a brand new pair of shoes remember that uh, carl yeah you just brush off the sides of the uh thing make it look clean and yes second sole good as new <laughs> you you had big second sole uh function uh, you know uh, right there in san diego that was you know oh yes that was their headquarters right uh, I believe so. Yeah, uh, Wheeler and whatever the other guy's name was. Yeah, Bob Wheeler. That's what's, right. What's, exactly right. What's, Bob what's, Wheeler. what's funny about that is? What, oh, sorry. About, go ahead, Doc. I was going to say Bob Wheeler, Duke University, fifteen hundred meter runner, one of America's great runners. They did a really nice job with that with that uh, entity, though, didn't they? What I think well, is interesting is is back that back then, like in a lot of shoes, my, my first several pair of shoes fell apart, right? And like they weren't they delaminated or what have you. And you know, certainly we know now that there's different construction techniques and adhesives and all this stuff. But I remember my first several pairs of shoes falling apart. My parents not wanting to buy you know more shoes, and you know there was a thing called shoe goo, obviously back then. It, um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure when that emerged, but it was like whatever that rubber cement was to fix your shoes. And I remember several pairs of shoes that I you know I I kind of piece back together, right? Because I, I was still in the middle of my cross-country season and like, you know, you couldn't run with a delaminated shoe, obviously. Hey, hey man, Shugu was, was the, the, the next generation. It actually started, we used to use what we called a shuga, a shoe gun. You got this, this, this gun and you put this little, you know, piece of material inside it and heated it up 
and you squirted it out of the gun uh, onto the shoe. That was the precursor to, to shoe goo. <laughs> yeah, it's good to know. Yeah, and I was obviously. I do. Yeah, and we used to also just cut little rubber snips off. You, you tried to find a rubber that endured because some things wore all too much like butter. And then we'd super glue it onto after smoothing and then roughing the thing onto the bottom. And that worked. There, there was also in a tube similar to Shugu, there was, you could get liquid rubber. Oh, yeah. 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 That way you could have it black instead of that clear goopy stuff. Hey, do you remember Carl? Everybody, you know, in those those early days, people would you know they'd come in, they'd buy a pair of Brooks running shoes from you. They'd buy the Brooks Villanova, uh, and they would you'd go out and they'd run in the rain, and then they would take their their shoes and to dry them <laughs> off. You throw them in the dryer, or they put it next to the heat register. Next thing you know, mid salt yeah. um, pops off, and they bring them back like they're totally defective shoes. Hey, you know. What, but, but it was because of the delamination, because of the exposure to, to, to heat. Remember, remember yeah, how heat, got? heat is not a real friend of uh, running shoes, particularly with foams and glues and such that are strongly heat sensitive. We've obviously come come a long way with shoe constructor, but it, but it is amazing to think. And, and I remember some of these things, like when you'd have stores like really servicing your shoes. I mean, like rebuilding shoes, and certainly maybe that's contrary to new sales of shoes, but certainly that was a big thing back then. I think that um, you know uh, it was still so early in the in the in the manufacturing process of shoes. It seems that obviously there was a lot that were falling apart. But I guess that might lead into the tailwind uh, story initially. Mike, you told me some good stories about the tailwind, and you probably both have good stories. Nike's original original air shoe that I know was. Uh, probably a good idea and innovated in a lot of ways, but also was uh, pretty shoddy when it came out. Is, is that uh, what you recall, Mike? Yeah. Um, some people had more, uh, more success than others with them. Uh, they totally fell apart pretty quickly, but man, the, the, you know, what they did in terms of, you know, protection, you know, and the, the shock absorbency, the cushion was amazing. Um, you know, I, I actually uh, did some racing in them um, and, and raced quite successfully in them, which is kind of weird. Uh, but they were just so forgiving. Um, but yeah, the the uh, the midsole, the polyurethane midsole would crack, right? It would, remember, it would yellow. First, it would yellow. PU, one of the natures of, of PU is that it yellows. But it would crack. And then the uppers, if you might recall, had they were this um, silver mesh. And all of the, the the silver coloration would fleck off, and then they did a um, a next version of it with a solid nylon versus the mesh, and uh, and they they held up a little bit better. But they were really, um, you know, one of the key breakthrough shoes in in the evolution of uh, athletic footwear, running footwear. Yeah, the like the initial tailwinds had, uh, I think, the wrong air pressure in them. And that that created an instable foot plant for many people, and thus some injuries resulted. But once Nike figured out how to uh, get the air pressure in the airbags better, yeah, they sold a lot of shoes. At least I think they did. Yeah, it, yeah it's, it's, we're not a for everybody shoe, you know. If you were, you know, at the time I was like, you know, 131 pounds and a four foot striker, and you could get away with it. But if you put kind of a more of a, a, a heftier cat with you know, there's a little more of a heel striker in those shoes, they were a bunch of they were a, 
they were a ball of oatmeal, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It certainly led to a lot of other innovations. I mean, certainly when Nike was able to put air successfully into their shoes, probably had put a, a light bulb on in many other brands, obviously, um, additional Nike shoes, um, leading to the Pegasus, which I think first came out in 82 or 83. And that was uh, certainly um, a successful shoe, but also obviously uh, the Nike Air Max eventually in the late 70s. But but also uh, Asics Gel, other brands had, had new things coming out. Um, Mike, at some point, I think in the early 80s, you were at Reebok, right? And uh, Reebok at the time was one of the leading brands running um, or trying to become so and certainly be, did become so. But they also uh, pursued a lot of different innovations. Uh, talk about um, kind of your experience at Reebok and how there was that push to really innovate in the 80s. I mean, I know there was a lot of new technologies that kind of went through the 90s, too, uh, that really changed running shoes. Well, you know, um, uh, interestingly, ev- everybody, w- um, you know, so it's a small industry or was a small industry and uh, all the guys that work within the industry, uh, you know, particularly on the corporate level, uh, I was the assistant product manager in the running category at Reebok um, after having been a tech rep out in the field. And, um, you know, we would go to shows, trade shows or big events like the New York City Marathon and we would have our booth, the Reebok booth and the Brooks would have theirs and Nike would have theirs and Asics. Would, and, you know, all the guys that worked, you know, we, all of us shoe dogs would all knew one another. And we all, we, you know, so, it, you know, there was, there was some things that were proprietary, but basically the bottom line is each of us all had the exact same goal. And that was to uh, create some kind of midsole technology that we could, you know, uh, hang our hat on as a brand, something uh, that w- was not uh, Nike. So Nike had air, Everybody else was trying to have something, whether it be the coils in uh, kangaroos or, you know, the, the gel <laughs> and whatever. And um, we had uh, one of the things I was uh, involved in was the launch of ERC at Reebok. And ERC is the uh, energy uh, energy uh, return, ERS, energy return system. Remember that, Carl? Yeah, yes, yes. And, and they were- I, I do. Yeah. They were a series of high trail nylon tubes. High trail nylon was best known for being used in the uh, couplers between uh, uh, locomotives. You know, when they would bang in, into each other and, and connect, they the thing that uh, reduced the shock between the two uh, 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 machines was this high trail nylon. So we put high trail nylon in uh, in, in a format of, of uh, tubes in the shoes to absorb shock. That was one of, you know, so every single brand was, had the exact same in the shoe war days, everybody had the exact same objective and it was to to create some kind of gadgetry. Uh, And the fact is almost none of it worked. None none of it really mattered. I don't know that air mattered or um, gel mattered more. What really mattered most was what the material was uh, that, that surrounded it. Right. And the various densities of it, you know, um, and the forgiveness of that material probably way more so than the actual gadgetry that was inserted inside the midsoles. And let, let's not forget that still the single most important part of a shoe working for an individual is that it fits that person. Absolutely. And uh, be, I mean, there's, you know, up until, well, for lots of years, all the shoes sort of seem shaped the same and stuff like that. And then every once in a while, somebody 
uh, fiddled a little bit with it and made a shoe that's a little bit more foot shaped and such. Um, but uh, it it fit. I mean, it, it allows function. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily you command have it. A crappy shoe, but if it fits your foot, you know you're going to get way more out of it than a fancy shoe that doesn't fit your foot. Yeah, fancy shoes. That's uh, when Brian was talking about. Yeah, okay, carbon plated, two hundred and fifty bucks. Um, uh, it, those are not for everybody, and they're definitely even for the people that they're for. Th those are not an everyday shoe for those people, mm. and that that's where some of the stuff goes wacko. Because if you're sitting in a store selling footwear to people, most of those people are using one shoe for the duration of the life of that shoe, and then they you know end up going and getting another one finally. But uh, th this new stuff. It's uh, you you can't use it all the time without ramifications. Hey, yeah, speaking, of shoe, I think that... speaking of shoe shapes, uh, how about the old LD one thousand, Carl? <laughs> like <laughs> LD one thousand, not the LD. I had a pair of those, or yellow with the it orange was. stripe with the big, big white ass flare. Yeah, I cut my. Uh, Calf on the other foot with the the wedge that because it was so wide, and then yeah, the, similar to the, uh, the Adidas Marathon eighty, I think too. What's that? I think I think the Adidas it wasn't the Adidas Marathon eighty. Uh, wasn't that also a really wide wide flared shoe? They they had the a Marathon eighty. No, they had a trefoil. Remember? Oh yeah 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 yeah. That's what they did. They had a racing shoe like that. But the 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 biggest the 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 most polar opposite to the LD1000 uh, had to have been the Brooks John Walker RT1. T1s. <laughs> Remember that? It looked like a boomerang. <laughs> yes, they're, 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 the midsole was cut out fairly strongly under the arch. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely loved that shoe. But if, you know, <laughs> again, you know, I had a little tiny, skinny, narrow double a width foot and is all four foot striking and you know actually ran ran a, my first ever sub 230 marathon in a pair of those uh, i blistered like hell but damn that was that was, <laughs> that was a pretty speedy little shoe um th th there were lots of good shoes from that era but uh were, were those durable mike at all um, they had a high, higher carbon content outsole than than many, so the outsole lasted fairly well. It was just sheet EVA, um, and uh, but it was really cut kind of more almost like a track spike with a midsole to it, you know. Yeah, it was really, really, really radically curved, um, and and again the complete and total um, uh, opposite to the incredibly straight and rigid uh, LD-1. Uh, and remember the full, that LD-1000, it was fully board lasted too, right? So you want to talk about rigid. Man, that yes, thing, it was a hammer. Right, exactly. Exactly it was. But the, what, the, uh, the, Carl, what was the best uh, best selling shoe uh, in your stores back in that, in that era? Oh, I'm not sure if my gray matter functions well enough to answer that. Um, <laughs> I mean, back right about that era, there were lots of specialty stores around the country that were selling 
something like 40 to 50% Nike. Okay. We made a distinct effort not to focus that much on any one brand because it was scary. But I, I really did like the Nike Elite when it came out because it was sort of a racing shoe, but it had enough cushion to train in if you were at all smooth. So um, that as to what shoes... When, when did the Brooks Chariot come out? That was a really popular model for a long time. Hated it. I think it came out in 78, 79. It was not for you, Michael. <laughs> yes. Um, Mike, what other, what other, what other favorite shoes do you have from that era? Um, well, uh, to, to, uh, what I sold a whole lot of early on in my uh, retail uh, career, I, I mentioned the, the 320s. We sold thousands of 320s. Uh, partly because it was the they had uh, width sizing, so that was great, and they were affordable. Uh, and then once they went to the six twenty, oh my god, it was the first fifty dollars shoe. Uh, people kind of freaked out a little bit. But I would say, um, you know, the, the what I believe uh, is the uh, all time best selling shoe, and I probably I sold many, 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 many of them was Nike Pegasus in their in their various renditions. Um, I love that elite bow, by the way, just to go back to that. What, that was a really, really cool shoe. And uh, um, it was that shoe what, was the reason that people ended up having to size up in oh, most uh, running shoes. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, up until before that, you could almost go in and say, okay, give me a size 10, and it would fit. The elite, because they were trying to push it as a lightweight racing shoe, if, if your size 10 is, let's say, eight inches long, it's going to weigh more than if it's seven and three quarters inches long. And it, they seem to downsize it so that it could weigh less for a size nine, even though size nine didn't fit a size nine. Um, the, the shoe after that, Carl, that really knocked me out uh, and still, and, you know, I, I, would, I would kill for a pair today is the... Uh, the Air Mariah, Nike Air Mariah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, I was, we, we were wearing the, uh, we morphed out of the elites, Nike elites into Eagles, not American Eagles, but the original Eagle. Yeah. Right. And uh, in fact, I ran my marathon PR in a pair of those with a Lunaris pillow insole. Remember the Lunaris pillow insole that you'd steal out of your New Balance shoes and stick them in other shoes because they were so soft and cushy. Uh, but then uh, we, we got the good fortune of taking that was essentially the Eagle, not the American Eagle, but uh, adding a layer to it and, you know, putting four, it had four foot air. And uh, that was a beauty. And that was a, that was a, just a fantastic racing flat. Must have come out 1981, you think, Carl? Uh, that sounds good. I used to trade Air Mariah's to Kevin McCary for bodywork. <laughs> uh, hey, he was sponsored by Nike. Uh, for a while. This was after that, I yeah, think. Yeah. yeah, he was, um, I think he ran for he a, pretty quick athletics West. Yep. I think the Eagle did come out in, uh, about 81 because the American Eagle came out in 82. Um, and then shortly after that was the, uh, the Terra TC with that super oh light phone. Oh my god! That one. Terra TC, white with black and red, uh, with a yep. pylon midsole. Pylon. Uh, yeah, I've got some uh, fond and not so fond memories of that. How about you, Carl? <laughs> uh, 
Um, that shoe sold really well. I, I know several people who went through it like butter, but loved it so much that, I mean, they probably in a year's time went through six, seven pair because, um, yeah, the, the, the weight for what you got underneath you was pretty awesome. Yeah, that, that, that shoe, that was a 150 mile shoe. <laughs> and then uh, I guess speaking of that, we had a lot of shoes that came out. And then uh, eventually, as I mentioned earlier, the Air Max, this uh, really cushioned, probably the, one of the first maximal shoes, you know, um, a lot of foam, a lot of air. But from that point on, it seemed like from the late late 80s until certainly the early 2000s, it seemed like shoes got heavier or had more stuff added to it. What was what was going on with that? I mean, they st there's still performance racing flats, obviously, but uh, it seems like most training shoes, maybe built for the masses, seemed to get bigger, heavier, and had more stuff. Was that a thing that you guys uh, recall? Yeah, I, I think they were just adding things, trying to find a hook. You know, Mike was talking about the different cushioning systems in the midsoles, but they're, they're just looking for something. Some of the shoes I like the most were shoes that never really sold all that well. We that When... Converse had a deal with Lydiard, and the, the Lydiard Equinox and the Lydiard Thunderbolt are still two of my favorite shoes of all times. What about Challenger Web from back then? That was almost the same exact era as the Terra TC. Yeah, Dillinger Webb was so that was the Adidas Oregon I ran back in uh, you know in middle school for me. That was, that was, wow, it, that was it, it, the web wore out though the web that the kind of web mesh uh, kind of wore out after time, but it, it certainly looked cool. Man, I love that. <laughs> so again, like looking for some cushion and lightweight, that bad boy was, that was a fast train issue, man. Uh, the gray with a maroon stripe, that, that version yeah. of yeah. that, oh boy, that was, that was, you, that was you like the, that better than, better than the Atlanta, which is the maroon with version. What? The Atlanta was the racing version of that shoe. Ah. Wasn't it? Wasn't it that kind of maroon colored? Uh, yeah, it was maroon, and I, I, I guess it was a little bit lighter. But the the organ itself was pretty light, so yeah, yeah it was. Yeah, yeah it was a little, a yeah. little bit pared down. As as we evolved, I know Mike, Mike, you got out of the, the, the running industry after you were at the Sports Authority. You got in real estate, which is maybe a smart move. Carl, you, <laughs> was, you were you, you were still in uh, running retail, and, and running retail obviously changed and emerged. And I know we had more runners from all aspects coming in. It, it seemed like running retail changed from a place where uh, it, it happened over time, where there was all the geeky runners going in, concerned about our training and our fast times. With all these new people came in and were basically just interested in in being fit, and being healthy. Uh, uh, it seems like that changed running retail quite a bit. Did that impact your business? Uh, I mean, when new 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 runners were coming in, oh, it probably saved us. I mean, uh, a lot of businesses operate on a level which is. Uh, squeaking by, pulling yourselves up by shoelace, whatever, all of that stuff. And we weren't grandly any different. And yeah, those, what we'll call new runners. And then, I mean, if you wish to segue into the, you know, the new marathon boom, uh, which driven by um, various good cause running. Team and, tra team and training, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, team and training, I think, actually started here in San Diego. I think you're right, yeah. I think Tom Hunt was the original team and training coach. Really? Yeah. 
So all of a sudden you had a whole new influx of people that came into the store, right? And like uh, they didn't know anything about running shoes or running. And, and that probably uh, created a whole new, as you said, a whole new customer base for, for, for your running store. Yeah, it, 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 it did. It was wonderful. And it also created problems. Like how do you sell a shoe to somebody who you know is going to run much of their mileage tired? Um, yeah. as opposed to, you know, fresh up on their foot kind of stuff. Yep. So yep. It, it, it's, it, it was a, a questionable thing, and it still is. I mean, there's still people who, you know, don't consider themselves uh, to be a runner until they run a marathon. We had a guy who worked for us who he had run 28, 24, 10K. He had never run a marathon, and these newbie marathoners uh, – came in and asked him if he ever ran a marathon and he said no and they they looked like well then you can't be a runner yeah. <laughs> it's crazy and, 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 and sadly that was part of the conflict even though more runners were coming in and eventually getting motivated to do their thing but to your point it does seem like there's there, there's still um a disconnect between runners who are training and, and, and by that i mean like doing workouts and, and going through different paces during the week and certainly essentially use, using different shoes for that as opposed to someone who's just coming in looking for a a lifestyle fitness shoe to run all at the same pace and there's nothing wrong with that it's just that it's certainly um there's a disconnect relative to understanding the right shoe for that person it seems like Yeah, finding the right shoe for that person is, is a trick because they will have been talking to either friends, their podiatrist, or reading uh, running magazines, and they, they think they've already figured out what's a good shoe for them. Well, and, and coordination was really important, too. Color coordination, very, very high level. Uh, thinking. Oh, yes. Well, and, and people still shop by color, right? I mean, like, we know that for sure, and, and brand loyalty to some extent, but... I guess one of the things that, that ties all this together is that it's certainly when, pe when people were coming into stores, you know, they, they had an idea of what they wanted or whatever, but they, they had really no idea. A lot of these new runners had no idea about running, you know, in like terms of, you know, if you had a background in any kind of competitive running or training, you, you knew that you were running different paces, different speeds, doing drills, doing more than just running. And then, you know, we, we come to the early 2000s with this massive in influx of people. And then all of a sudden we wind up in this this funny and unique and strange thing known as the minimalist boom, right? And then I, I think the best thing, and we can get that in a second, the best thing out of the minimalist boom was people were finally focusing again on running form. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, we had we had the, the Nike Free Project, which was a cool um, barefoot-related project, obviously. And then we had the, the Five Fingers and, and all kinds of stuff, and then Born to Run. I guess, Carl, from your point of view, in, in the running retail industry, what did the minimalist craziness do for your store? I mean, people must have been coming in asking for Five Fingers and all this crazy stuff. What was that like? Yeah, th th there was definitely a surge because, again, they read an article or talked to somebody. And, <coughs> and the, the Five Fingers aren't good or bad. They can be used well or not used well. And a lot of people, again, we're dealing mostly with Americans. So if a little is good, more is better somehow <laughs> in their mind. Or if less is good, lesser is better. And, uh, I mean, most coaches have their people maybe do some barefoot strides and such. And, that, I mean, that's sort of what the five fingers were for in our situation I mean, I used to run barefoot on the beach regularly. Mission Beach is, you know, a th three plus mile long 
thing and you can just uh, enjoy yourself until one winter day when I stepped on a shell and didn't run for several weeks. Um, but that's where the five fingers can definitely shine because you yep. want to protect from uh, the hazards of the world. But we yep. used to run in aqua socks. Oh, yeah. As well, if yeah. you remember the aqua sock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, some so, of the triathletes would use that for the run portion. Um, it, 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 as long as you didn't try to take a, you know, sharp, fast turns, it wasn't bad. <laughs> I forgot about the aqua sock and sock racers and sock trainers. Yep. I had, a, I had a pair of sock racers back in the day. Yep. Yeah. And then air socks and all of that stuff. But yeah, yeah there, there were lots of good shoes over many, many years. Crazy evolution. I guess, I guess, um, certainly, you know, we know that one of the things that happened with that minimalist boom is that a lot of runners got hurt. Obviously, a lot of these new runners that were, you know, out uh, jogging miles or what, whatever it was, were all of a sudden, you know, maybe going out, you know, first thing in a pair of those shoes and running 10 miles or, or just too much too soon. I guess, you know, it wasn't surprising to me that, uh, first of all, a brand like Hoka came along with the opposite kind of um, idea with more cushion, you know, more foam, still lightweight and still more natural in stride, but, but also then led to this whole kind of crazy uh, foam war where we had, you know, Adidas Boost and then every other brand coming up with their own proprietary foam. It seemed like we know we needed protection, to your point, Carl, and, and something underneath. But we also know that uh, certainly it felt better to run with foam. If, if you go back to your Chuck Taylors, Mike, I mean, obviously – running with shoes now with foam as opposed to no foam, obviously it's a, it's a vast difference, but I guess um, it also led to a huge innovation in, in performance too. So, you know, it, it seemed like the minimalist movement was purposeful. Um, even if, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of, of, a, of a problem when it happened, but I guess, you know, now we have these shoes that we can't believe we're running in, um, you know, but, but, but shoes have been evolving the whole time. I guess, Mike, take us back to that. And like, you know, you're running in shoes now that probably you would have loved to have when you were 18, 19, 24 years old, right? Well, at, at 112,000 miles in, my body uh, would, would, would probably be in a whole lot better condition than it is today. I <laughs> had some shock absorbency back in the day. Um, but, you know, back to the minimalist stuff, uh, you know, that you know, the only people that profited on uh, the minimalist uh, movement was the orthopedists and and they and <laughs> a lot of orthopedists got very very wealthy during that little window of time. Um, when yeah, sure. uh, these days, you know, uh, what I find really extraordinary is, is the the foams that uh, Hoka uses and that sort of thing. Um, you know, if you're a pure runner, uh, the first time you try to wear something that chunky, I mean, you know, it's just not intuitive. But uh, I cannot tell you how many of uh, friends that were formerly competitive runners that are of my vintage guys that are in their late fifties or sixties or seventies, uh, that it's actually enabled, uh, them to go out and, and, and putter about a little bit, whereas they, you know, they probably had knee surgeries or hip surgeries and they had totally written the, the activity off. Um, and, uh, to their credit, um, you know, Hoka, um, has just provided a, a, a great, service to to uh, folks like that um i personally actually run in the uh, hoka i like my hoka cliftons particularly their first rendition which were mushier and softer i like mush and soft that's probably why i like the tailwind <laughs> and and then i do my fast stuff on the track in the four percent and uh i so you know while there seems to be no breakthroughs in or much in the way of breakthroughs 
in running technology uh, for a quite some time. I find the the breakthrough uh, on the big chunky Cush uh, side that um, that Hoka has provided and the carbon fiber plate at the four percent. To me, those are just unbelievable breakthroughs. And if you've never run in some one of those kinds of shoes with a plate like like the four percent, particularly if you're trying to do something fast on the track, my God, I can't tell you. And for me, it wasn't. A, it's not about you know being able to run faster. It's about being able to run with better protection. You come away from a session in shoes like that, and you're just not as thrashed. And you know the 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 main thing to, to if you're training to be to be fitter, uh, to training to compete. Uh, all of your uh, fitness takes place in the recovery phase. And that recovery phase is enhanced by the technologies, the midsole compounds like the Hoka's and the, uh, the, the 4%. So I'm really uh, feeling very, very, uh, while I'm in a cast right now with four screw, screws in my foot, waiting, uh, anxiously waiting to come back, uh, come back number uh, 134. Uh, I can't wait to get back into some Hoka's 4%. I agree with your assessment about the, the these new modern shoes. As much as we know they are fast shoes and producing you know fast race times, uh, you know from the marathon and uh, on down, um, I, I do I do agree that like my experience in, in running in them, uh, for example, like a, a twenty miler on the weekends, uh, you know, as opposed to an old EVA shoe, and then wearing a pair of these. Um, not only do you feel at the end of that run, you feel like you're not as beat up, but the next day you're not, you don't have that soreness, you know, that typically uh, lags after that long, you know, Sunday pavement run, you know, and so I think, I think that's a big thing. And I obviously, obviously every brand has these advanced foams now, which are both uh, cushioning and uh, propulsive. Um, and then, but also the carbon fiber plates. And, and Carl, you got into it earlier and, and certainly no, they're not for everybody and not for running all the time. And, you know, sadly for 200 to $250, maybe not for people at all because it's expensive. But I guess um, one of the things I've been doing the last couple of years is having to kind of de- defend somewhat the evolution of, of some of these shoes um, for only for the point of, you know, people are saying, oh, it's mechanical doping. And I guess I'd love to get your take on that. And as we about wind down here, but like, certainly there's been a lot of, of, of shoe evolutions through the years and, and most of them, not all of them, but most of them have produced some type of performance uh, benefit. But this is the, one of the first that has really jumped out and people really kind of were, um, kind of upset about maybe because nike did it and nike's always obviously polarizing but but maybe carl um talk about that i mean obviously there's a lot of shoes you sold through the years and and most of them have improved people's running but these shoes specifically obviously have changed performance and people are are you know until recently not really not really down with that whole thing yeah i mean people talk about performance and that's one thing and i'm all in favor of you know allowing people to run faster i do think it's probably more important what you and mike were talking about as far as not feeling beat up the next day, that you are running with less effort and not uh, beating your muscle groups into submission every day so that the next day you can go and do another workout. Um, As to how I feel about, you know, the people who maybe can't afford those new shoes, um, yes, they're a factor. But when it comes down to it, it it's just running. I mean, it, it's not like it's solving world problems. Good point. Good point. Or stuff like that. So, um, yeah, you go out and do what you can do. Yeah, Mike. Mike, how fast do you think your PR would have been in the marathon had you had a pair of those shoes back in the seventies? 
Um, candidly, I think that uh, I would have run faster if we had had uh, a more of the, you know, the, 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 the other facet of, of technology that came around, which was, you know, glucose polymer drinks and goos and that sort of a thing, because okay. the marathon, you know, you're going to, you're going to break down and at some point in time. I think it was actually, uh, the, 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 we were we were lean and light and 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 that sort of thing. Do I think that the shoes would have made us faster? Probably not as much as having having uh, uh, aid like in the way of you know maintaining your blood sugar level uh, at stasis for a longer period of time. But uh, yeah, maybe if I had a four percent, I don't think I would have run very much faster. No, you know, um, I, that's that that's um, it wasn't the shoes that prevented us from going faster at the marathon distance as much as it was whether or not you ran out of, out of, out of uh, glucose. Uh, um, yeah, if I had to guess, you know, my marathon PR was in a pair of Nike uh, Eagles, all things being equal, I, you know, maybe 30 seconds at two, uh, I ran two hours and I was 225 as my best. Uh, yeah. I maybe get 30 seconds, but, you know, yeah. um, nowhere near as much as I would have gotten with uh, uh, better better uh, race day nutrition. Yeah, interesting. It's an in, interesting take because I think that certainly we all know that the, in in training for distance running there are no shortcuts, right? I mean, and so you know, if you if you believe like I do, the Steve Jones approach is it, it's it's not about the shoes, it's not about the gear, it's about certainly how much you train and how well you train and how, how much effort you give on race day, and certainly having that uh, that glucose on race day is part of your ability to give that effort. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, I think that now we you know we're we're well down the road with this new shoe paradigm, so they're here to stay, which is probably a good thing. But uh, certainly, um, certainly, it still comes down to the training and your commitment to running. Um, maybe for, for the last thing for now, I'd love to hear each of you and kind of what you think about what's next. I mean, we, we know that shoes have been evolving from, you know, back in those uh, '60s days of, of New Balance Trackster and, and Converse Chuck Taylors uh, to now, obviously with all these advanced shoes, but I guess, um, Mike, you know, based on your background as a runner in, in the running industry, we know that running shoes have evolved since that time. What's, what's next? Is there a limit? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I've always been a, uh, less is more, not, not minimalist, but I, I believe that, uh, simple is, is, is a good way to be, uh, relative to, to shoes and shoe technology. Um, but uh, so I'm kind of thinking I might be going back to my EB Lydiards uh, in my next comeback. All right. <laughs> there you go. In, in your next comeback. Carl, how about you, Carl? Your, your store sold such a wide range of shoes from the 1970s well, to I, 2000s. I mean, yeah. As to what's next, I mean, if you look at the technologies in road shoes, sort of trying to transfer onto the track, I mean, even with the uh, pandemic sort of shutdown, there have been world records in some track things yeah. with these, uh, you know, the uh, the technology that the four percent and such have. Um, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? I I don't view it uh, in that scale necessarily. I think if it intrigues some people to be interested in the sport, that's a good thing as long as it's not talking. A, about drugs being the reason that people are running faster, but then, uh, 
yeah, that still flops all over this sport as well. So that's true. That's good. That's a good point. Maybe that's a good way to wrap it up relative to. We know that uh, obviously there's still athletes inspired to run fast. There's still brands that are out there making you know cool new shoes. That, like I said, most of these innovations are leading to, to new things. And hopefully, uh, if there's a way to tie that together with the the rest of the runners out there, certainly when when somebody runs 201 or sub two hours for a marathon, that can inspire someone to say, "Oh, that's cool. That's inspiring." Because that's kind of ties back to the the early 70s and the, the first boom when people saw, you know, the, the Frank Shorters, the Herb Lindsay's, whoever they were running fast and people decided to run fast. So that's a, uh, that's a good perspective. Uh, with that though, we'll wrap it up. It's been a fun, fun conversation about running shoes, especially back in the, uh, the early days. Uh, Mike Finelli, thank you very much. Carl Brandt, thank you very much. It's been great talking with you guys. Hey, nice to, uh, I'd say see you, but nice to talk with you, Brian. Yeah, I enjoyed it, Brian. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And, and Carl, always great getting caught back up. Hey, Mike Finelli, I should uh, come visit your garage sometime. Right on. You've got an open invitation, my man. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> cool, cool, guys. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye, everybody.